Welcome to the five things this week in social. On this podcast, we find stories from every corner of the social verse, and our panel provides you with insights and expert point of view, all so that you can have something smart to say when your boss asks you, what's a chat GPT? Today, we welcome back Director of Data Strategy, Daniel Avon, and for the first time, we have Gray Strategic Planner, Esty Wasner. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Joey. Great to be back. Daniel, do you have a song stuck in your head lately? Yes, Joey. I do have a song stuck in my head lately. This sounds like a humble brag, but I promise it's not. There's this Portuguese show on Netflix that I watched that's called Until Life Do Us Part, which is about a married couple that works in the marriage industry that are separating. And the theme song for that is so good. It's like very 2000s easy rock. And it makes me so nostalgic for that time. And it's just giving it to me in 2023. I love that. And hello, Esty. What about you? What have you been playing on repeat lately? Hello, hello. Excited to be here. I've been playing Unstoppable by Sia. I actually, well, this also is going to sound like a humble brag, but I just did a half marathon and that was the only thing that can get me over the finish line. So it's been on repeat for a while. It is such a good song. Shout out to Sia. That sounds awesome. And I'm Joey Scarillo. And like you, Daniel, I have been digging on the deep cuts from my college days. So I've been listening to a lot of Guster and Jimmy World lately. And you know what? That's not a humble brag. That's just, it's just a brag because that music rocks. All right, let's get into the five things today. First up, Daniel explains how Meta is flattening their workforce. And then Esty explains how Google is entering the chat AI ring while Meta is playing catch up. Then Daniel tells us that TikTok beats out all other apps globally on daily active users and time spent for teens. Then Esty gets into Pinterest, who aim to make videos shoppable. And finally, Daniel breaks down Instagram monetizing reels with gifts. All right, let's get into it, friends. Daniel, what is going on at Meta and them flattening the workforce? So I will start off by saying I am sad to have more employee employment news with the tech world, but this seems to be a little bit of a different perspective on things. So embarking on what Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg is calling the year of efficiency, bold title, following their earnings report, Meta has announced it is moving to flatten its middle management heavy organization. This means that people managers, so people who manage people, many of whom only manage one to two people, will be converting to individual contributors or being asked to leave for the most part. I don't think it's like a, a blanket statement, but they're really trying to tighten the workforce. Additionally, teams and projects with competing objectives, so say that there are two teams kind of running at a similar problem or running at a similar problem different ways, will be scrutinized and reconciled. I don't see this necessarily as the canary in a coal mine of further mass layoffs to come. It's being framed as a restructuring that will have gradual layoffs over time. As Meta has been a model for other tech companies who have recently conducted mass layoffs, this may be a sign of what the next rounds of layoffs might look like of those other tech giants. And to say it 
more succinctly, keeping those contributing most and doing the work versus the bureaucracies that currently exist and that have developed and built around these tech companies. Again, this is speculation, but Meta seems to have signaled to the other tech companies that they can operate and operate more successfully with a much leaner staff as so far this year, Meta earnings are up. There's no current clear or apparent implications for brands. It is curious to see how this is going to impact sales forces and customer service teams if it might be harder to reach or you'll have to wait longer to engage with folks working on the platform from the brand side and if other organizations will take this lead and what that might imply for their sales teams. Another piece of this as well is with a tighter focus on what the staff is, what they're doing, there will be less opportunity for vision and more need to just get the job done and focus on the simple, specific things that make them money. All of that seems to make sense. I think if I were watching a slide deck that Zuckerberg were presenting, that all seems to make sense. Esty, I'm curious what your point of view is on the big picture of what this means for Meta, knowing that they're you know, they've got a diversity of projects and they're growing. But also, what does it mean on the big picture for tech and advertising? Well, I think in general, you know, unfortunately, we've been getting this kind of news and you can call it whatever you want to call it, restructuring for the last few weeks. And I feel like people are just generally really anxious. There's a lot of unrest. There's a lot of like tectonic plates shifting. I do think it means in some sense, you know, it's forcing a reckoning. These companies are kind of trimming the fat, so to speak, where they're like, okay, maybe we've made some mistakes in how we've done staffing before. But I do think, to your point, Daniel, the creativity, some of that vision stuff gets lost. I think people are going to be afraid. People are going to be billing hard, making sure that they can prove their weight, which is not necessarily a good thing to constantly feel like you got to be productive every second of every day. I think that could be a little bit of a dangerous mindset. So I'm curious how it will play out. Right now, I think everyone's just holding steady and trying to figure out where things are going to land. Very interesting. I'm really glad that we brought this topic to the table because these tech companies who have social platforms underneath them, we have to think sometimes about the big picture. And so that is great. So now we're going to stick with the big picture and talking about these major tech companies. Esty, tell us about Google and again about Meta and their race to win in chat AI. Yes. So a very warm welcome to Bard. Bard is the new chatbot that Google announced it would be releasing this past Monday, this week. And the internet giant said it's going to begin testing the new chatbot with a small private group before releasing it to the public in the coming weeks. And Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichar, he did do a blog post and he kind of reminded people that Google is already, you know, in this game, right? They've reoriented the company around AI about six years ago. And this is just another step towards their mission of organizing the world's information and making it universally acceptable and useful. He also mentioned that the company's search engine, so, you know, the Google we already know and love, would soon have artificial intelligence features that offer summaries of complex information. So everything really being integrated with all these new technologies. And the New York Times reported that Google has plans to release more than 20 AI products and features this year. So new AI search engine features will try to distill complex information and give you multiple perspectives to have a, a lot more of a conversational experience, which kind of means, you know, 
So Google's finally officially in the race, even though, of course, they've already been in the race creating a lot of these technologies. They did finally announce this official chatbot. Now that chat GPT, which I seem to always mispronounce. I don't know that it's just me. I, I, uh, the, G, the GPT becomes GBT a lot. <laughs> Um, we all do it too. We, I don't know. What, they should we have talked about that. that. Okay, so they should have figured that out because it's interesting. I know a lot of people can't pronounce it, but I will continue to stumble over that word as I as I go. But yeah, you know, they already, they're trying to catch up with chat GPT, which is obviously already a media sensation. But once we talk about the two pitting together, obviously it's not just them. And it's kind of fascinating to compare and not forget Galactica. So two weeks before chat GPT even appeared on the internet in November and kind of wowed the world Meta, you know, owner of Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram, unveiled their chatbot. So Galactica was designed for scientific research and could instantly write its own articles and solve math problems that even generated computer code, you know, the usual. But it didn't go so well. Galactica really also messed up sometimes, as AI can do. It played kind of fast and loose with facts. So it might have made up mathematical proofs. It was it was giving people, you know, historical dates that were misstated and telling some tall tales. But unlike OpenAI, which was the tiny... San Francisco lab that now made chat GPT. Meta received a whole lot of complaints when they released Galactica. All those little mishaps, people really railed against. People were really not okay with it. So after three days, the company basically pulled it. They removed Galactica from the internet. And I find this really interesting, you know, seeing as how Meta did Galactica, and then you have ChatGPT from this small company from OpenAI. Now you have Google coming out with BARD. It's interesting to see how the small company, big company are doing this kind of like branding. And, you know, if you think about this in terms of brand permission and how audience perception is kind of swaying the reaction of everything, the behemoths are not doing well. And, you know, they have a lot more to struggle up against. They have an existing brand. Some of them already obviously have struggled with, you know, whether it's security or, you know, people being worried about data breaches. They already have a brand perception. So how they package these products is critical. And the reaction obviously is based on an existing brand perception. Whereas the smaller companies, something like, you know, OpenAI that people maybe from outside the tech world hadn't heard about just yet, they're actually in a better position to launch these kinds of small products. And they don't receive the same kind of blowback. The larger companies are dealing obviously with more of an uphill battle. So yeah, officially the race is on and we'll see, we'll see what happens. This is so fascinating. It feels, it. I'm almost nostalgic for a meta Google race to the finish line. It feels it somehow reminiscent of the early days of this tech and social sphere. Daniel, with any new technology that comes out, the question always comes down to what are the use cases? So in the case of Google and Bard, how can users use this technology on a day-to-day -day basis? How will this make someone's day better? Because we all know technology can be cool, but if there's not a use case for it, then it's not really that cool. So to be frank, I'm not entirely certain because I view search with Google and with Microsoft through Bing as having a lot of AI components existing, like the autocomplete function, like maybe more subtler ways in the way that the programs are adapting to how you're working. And those are super useful to 
make search more conversational or to collate articles into like a more succinct summary or whatever the case may be is helpful. But as somebody whose job is to be a researcher, I think it's important to be able to see the different pieces that are contributing to that. And AI tends to blur the lines of what sources are feeding into things. So while it may give you a more condensed picture of things, oftentimes, as Esty was mentioning, like facts are brought in wrong. Information is brought in incorrectly. So I think from a researcher standpoint, but also a layperson, we have the responsibility to to use it, to lean into it, to understand it, but also understand the fact that it's not going to solve all our issues. And we do have to do the good research in order to really have the true picture on things. I'm rambling a little bit, but it's it's a little bit TBD just based on what functionalities come out. And as SD mentioned, like if Google is introducing 20 they have to be either quite small or small changes and and sort of nuanced things to introduce 20 big products and what is already understood as a very user-friendly interface that might make for some clunky UX going forward. So TBD, excited to see what it becomes, but I hope that people don't lose sight of, of the limitations that generative AI has. I really respect your point of view on this, Daniel, because I think as we've said time and time again on the show over the past couple of months, you know, AI is something that we are keeping an eye on a little bit skeptically, I think, from a creative standpoint and from an advertising standpoint on the use cases for this. So this is definitely something that we will keep reporting on and keep bringing stories uh, to the five things because this is something that is important to us and I know is important to our listeners. All right, let's get back into social in its truest form. Let's talk about TikTok, Daniel. Tell us how they beat out all other apps globally on two pretty important metrics. Why don't you break that down for us? Cool. So I will caveat just as I'm getting into the story. This is all based on a study conducted by Custodio, spelled with a Q-U instead of See, it's a limited sample and it's only a few countries, but there's sort of a global number that's given. So grain of salt, but this is kind of telling us what we expect and think of TikTok and how it relates to usage with kids and teens. Custodio has been tracking TikTok's leadership since June of 2020. And for a third-ish year in a row, it is the platform for kids and teens on daily active users or DAU and time spent on a given day. But Whereas in June of 2020, it was a little tighter between TikTok and YouTube in terms of time spent. Now, kids and teens spend 60% more time on TikTok than on YouTube. So TikTok is essentially the lion's share of the time that kids are spending with media generally. In terms of social, so just some additional platforms that came out of this report in terms of places where kids and teens are spending time. TikTok is followed by Snap and Instagram on a global level and Snap and interestingly Pinterest in the US. They also reported out on video game usage, which if you are a parent of teenagers or have heard parents of teenagers talk, you know that it's Roblox, Minecraft and Among Us that are kind of taking up the lion's share of their time there. So as advertisers, particularly ones who may desire to reach teens, this is all great information of the places and spaces that may make sense to advertise in. It is also indicative and kind of a recurring theme of the power and how it is continuing to grow despite some efforts to possibly outlaw it. Its usage and time spent among teams is massive, eclipses other platforms. However, YouTube, Snap, 
still featured on their Pinterest as well. So those are still great places depending on your needs to reach this audience. But we shouldn't just think of time spent as the thing to chase and just move ad dollars en masse to these platforms without consideration. In past episodes, we've reported about changes that TikTok and other platforms are making to tighten parental and safety controls and limit targeting capabilities so that they can be protecting teens. So yes, time is being spent there. Yes, you can probably find a good amount of this audience there. But this signal of the, the changes, improvements to tighten safety controls and so forth is hopefully telling to advertisers, like, be careful what you advertise, consider what it means for dysphoria, for what it means for any number of things of a developing mind. So while this is great to know, I just personally ask, use your ads and your dollars wisely. Thank you for that, Daniel. Esty, you know, when we get a piece of data or information, the question I always like to ask this panel is, did any of that surprise you? Are you surprised that TikTok beats out all other apps for daily active users and time spent for teens? Joey, I wish I could say I was surprised. I really do because it scares the hell out of me. I'm not surprised. No, I know how addictive. I don't know if I should out myself, but I know how addictive TikTok is firsthand, but not even to insert my own experience. I think you can see in younger viewers, you know, I think what was so interesting and continues to be so interesting about TikTok is that the behavior right? Unlike other social media platforms, maybe the behavior is a lot more similar to, let's say, consuming Netflix, right? When you have the commitment issues of Netflix, you go to TikTok because it's like you're live streaming short form movie, TV, entertainment. You're in this consume entertainment mode. I think what's really dangerous with young minds doing it is that it's so addictive and it's so it flows so easily that getting out of it, it's almost like it's it's releasing, obviously, these feel good chemicals and you could just keep going like, you know, and if you don't yet have the wise mind or the know all to, to realize that, like, this is not a healthy behavior, I think I think it's going to continue to be a problem. And obviously, with any kinds of technology, we know technology is addictive. This isn't something new, but there's been a little bit more maybe of a reckoning of like, what are we going to do about it? You know, like you have places like the Center for Humane Technology, you have people talking about it more like where is the ethics in this and how do we continue a allowing access or building things that do this to people. So no, I'm not surprised. I am concerned. <laughs> but yeah, it's, I guess, you know, it is what it is. And I guess we'll have to see what kind of protections are put in place, maybe eventually, because it is, it is going to continue to grow, I think. And it's a quick PSA from me personally. Don't watch TikTok before you go to bed. Amen. Truly, truly, truly messes with my sleep. If I'm scrolling on TikTok, I, I get the worst night of sleep. So I think it's true what they say about sleep. I think you should read a book, turn off your screens, put all that stuff away. Sleep is very important, folks. End of PSA. All right, Esty, let's talk about Pinterest. We love talking about Pinterest over here. And tell us about how they aim to make videos shoppable. I like saying shoppable. Good. Well, we're going to say it a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, Pinterest did say in their latest earnings call that the service 
now also has 450 million monthly active users globally, which is a 4% jump year on year. So a big congrats um, to them. And the social media company um, did announce that they are looking to make video more shoppable. So obviously, you know, they do have this big long-term goal to make every pin shoppable. So, you know, they started with static and they're following kind of that playbook and deploying computer vision technology across video to find products in video and make them shoppable. So again, all really makes sense. The CEO, Bill Reddy, said that uh, 10% of engagement is on video, but more than 30% of their revenue is on short form video. So that's a lot of revenue for the 10% of engagement. So really interesting. You know, obviously, they're not the only ones to do it. Other big names in the short video world are also looking at different ways of monetization. So you have YouTube starting to test a shopping feature for shorts last November. And in June, TikTok started experimenting with a dedicated shopping feed to highlight products. But it is interesting to keep our eyes on Pinterest specifically. We do adore it. Also, when you think of the user mindset, right, when you go to Pinterest, you're already in a shopping mindset, which is kind of, you know, unique for it. It's, it's not entertainment per se, although you might go to Pinterest to be entertained, but it's a lot more focused on discovery. So when people go to Pinterest looking for images or video, whether you're planning, you know, a party, a Super Bowl party, or you're looking for fashion inspiration, it's a lot about browsing possibility and discovering new things. And when you do that, you you know, you're, you're looking to kind of expand and you're looking to maybe shop. So it does make perfect sense for them to do this. I could see it being wildly successful. And I'm really curious to see how these features are going to roll out and what they're going to look like. Daniel, are brands going to love this? Is this just like music to a marketer's ears? I hope so. I think, uh, again, with Pinterest and just the types of brands that historically have engaged with the platform, it is going to first impact and be most interesting to like fashion, design, those types of brands where people are seeking out inspiration, maybe food brands if they're looking for recipes and so forth. But that's just the start of things. As this develops, becomes more mature, it will hopefully give opportunity to all brands, whether they have like physical products or services to engage with within this more shoppable social world that we are seeing develop. Um, but again, um, just given the mindset and the types of reasons that people for the large part, go to Pinterest, I think it's going to be of most interest and of most excitement to those sort of producty, fashiony, designy type of brands. We say it every week that this story comes up about Pinterest. We love Pinterest. I don't know why. I think it's just because they just feel like they're punching above their weight class. So again, go Pinterest. I would say too, if I may add, Pinterest is the feel-good happy place. I think the, one of the big reasons why we love it is because you don't have the same trolling that you have on other social media platforms. People go to Pinterest to feel good. That is where you're just looking for nice things. And there's, I think, less of that toxicity. I think Pinterest is the, the happy place of social media. I think that's right. And I think we could all use a little happy place. All right, let's find our happy place, wrap up this podcast with the fifth and final thing of the day. Daniel, tell us about Instagram monetizing reels with gifts. This is very interesting. Break it down for us. 
Amazing. Thanks, Joey. I feel like if you were to say those words, Instagram monetizes reels with gifts to somebody in the 1920s, they would be like, what are you talking about? This is very confusing language. So let's let's talk about this. Instagram announced it will be introducing a new monetization feature for creators called gifts. It seems like this kind of exists on Facebook to an extent, but within the Instagram universe, this is currently only going to be available through Reels. The process is and is not a little complicated, so let me try to explain the constituent parts. Gifts can be given to Reels creators by clicking on the Send Gift button, which will sit above the creator handle in a given Reel. The gift itself is purchased with a currency called STARS that is an in-app purchase, purchased, I think, elsewhere within the app. I don't know if you can have like a click-through purchase gift, purchase STARS to buy the gift and all that type of stuff. The current STAR packages go from 45 for 99 cents to 300 for 5.99, and I'm sure bigger packages exist, but that gives you a sense of, of the currency you're playing with. And Meta will receive a cut of what creators do. So when you give a gift to a creator, Meta gets, I guess, a facilitation fee and the creators get hopefully the lump sum of that. Um, But the goal is to compete with the likes of TikTok who have more developed monetization for their creators. It's interesting because there's kind of two sides of the coin at play here. One is Instagram is giving opportunity for users to reward creators and for creators to be rewarded. On the other side of things, because this is a way for creators to make money through Instagram. They're effectively incentivizing more creation of Reels, which kind of runs contrary to what the Instagram founders talked about a little while ago of how they're deprioritizing video and kind of focusing on the roots of Instagram. So it'd be interesting to see what this makes of it. But I think what this is signaling is that Reels are not dead. They're not going away. There's some underdeveloped and untapped potential for them as exemplified by this move. But I'm not sure necessarily how brands could participate in this. It feels kind of weird like for a brand to give a user or consumer gift to then give to a creator. Maybe there's a way to leverage gifts as a way to fundraise for causes or something in that vein. But I don't know if the T's and C's work out for that. All to say, reels are still happening. Instagram seems to be trying to figure out the best ways to engage with them and also compete with the likes of TikTok. So I thought that that was an interesting tidbit, but I'm curious, Esty, do you think that the behavior that Instagram is doing by adding this monetization is similar to any other platform that we're seeing? Or do you think people will engage with it the same way that they do on other platforms on Reels? I don't see how it's very different. I mean, for me, every single time one of these platforms comes out with a new fancy monetization thing that has a lot of complex words and just complicates their loyalty play. To me, it's just like not another thing. Like if I was an influencer and I was like, oh, now I have to learn this again. And now my audience has to learn this again. And I get it. They're trying to, like you said, level the playing field. They're trying to make sure that, you know, each of the features has their pull. Um, But I honestly, I'm not usually impressed by these things. I'm kind of like, okay, it's another add-on. It's another thing for people to learn. It's another thing that you might sunset in a few months because it doesn't work. Uh, So I'm a little jaded. I might be the wrong person to ask, but I'm jaded. I'm like, yeah, people will use it, but it doesn't sound special. I don't know. I guess uh, time will tell if I'm wrong, but uh, yeah, it just, to me, 
sounds like what every other platform is doing. Well, you're right. I don't know if people will use it, but I know for a fact I won't. I typically don't engage with these monetization things on these platforms because, you know, Instagram doesn't need my 99 cents or whatever they're charging for a star. But I will leave that up to the users to decide how they spend their hard-earned cash. But in the meantime, we're going to land this plane. And so if you don't already, folks... Be sure to like us, subscribe to us, follow us, review us, or write to us with your questions, comments, concerns, points of interest, or complaints, or just send us a thing you want us to discuss. You can do all of that by emailing us at podcasts at gray.com. Of course, I want to thank our panel today. Daniel, great job. And Esty, come back anytime. Let's make it a thing, my friend. As always, I'd like to thank Samantha Geller, Amanda Fuentes, and the crew over at Gramercy Park Studios behind the scenes. And this week, the team and I would like to thank Gabrielle Marchant for sending us a story. And a quick program note, friends, we will be away next week and we will be back the week after that. And finally, thank you, listener. And please, please be social. The Five Things are written and researched by the Social and Connections team at Gray New York, produced by Joey Scarillo and Samantha Geller. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Amanda Fuentes and Guy Rosemarin, with post-production support from Ned Martin. Additional support by Christina Hyde and Adrian Hopkins. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.